Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. My guest today is Roy Tennant. He has led many lives across many different places, and I can't wait to talk with him here today, live in the studio. Hello, Sonoma, and hello, Roy. My guest today is Roy Tennant. Welcome here. How are you doing today? Oh, doing great. Thank you. I'm so honored to have you here because you have possibly the most amazing and contrasting byline I've ever read. <laughs> Internationally known speaker and writer on library and information technology issues and commercial whitewater river guide. I'd like to add that, add to that your role as steward and star volunteer of the Sonoma Overlook Trail, which celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. We're going to talk about many of those experiences today, but let's just start down the road at the Overlook Trail. Tell us about how you got involved uh, with this piece of Sonoma's Right. Literal landscape. So I had been looking for a way to exercise more, and I tried various things, skating and, and various things, and I landed on hiking, which goes back to my roots. I used to hike a lot, and I enjoy that. So I started hiking the Overlook Trail, and one day it was raining, and I figured that the trail would need help on water drainage. So I went up there with a shovel, and a steward saw me and saw that I was – just jumping in and working on the trail and told me about the stewards. And so I joined them. It was over a decade ago and uh, been with them ever since. Well, among your duties, you help chisel rocks on rock patrol, control water during heavy rains, and act as the swashbuckling captain of the thistle pirates. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> eradicating yellow star thistle and Italian thistle since at least 2015. Yes. What do you enjoy about this recurring trail maintenance? I uh, enjoy being out there. I enjoy being in the wild. Um, if you're out there, you get to see various wildlife and flowers and insects and butterflies and all these things. So I just enjoy being out there. And if you're out there, you might as well be doing some work. Yeah, you have some incredible photographs of deer, of snakes, of woodpeckers, of all kinds of things. It mm -hmm. helps really you observe in a new way, I feel like, just being there in the dirt. Right. Yeah. Especially up close and personal with the, with the ground, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, there are two articles that you wrote, among many, about uh, what you've learned from your experiences. And I want to highlight, first one is called Don't Look Up and Other Lessons from Invasive Species Removal. Would you mind reading these two lessons excerpted from the article? Don't look up. The point about not looking up is that if you see the entire job before you, you may despair. But if you keep your head down and only look at what is in front of you, then you have a chance of going on and really making a difference in the long term. Next lesson is look up. <laughs> no, this is not a negation of the previous point, but merely the fact that sometimes it can really help to break out of the focus of the work you are doing and simply enjoy where you are. I love that. Simply <clears throat> enjoy where you are. And you can be doing, you can have both of those lessons in your head, don't you think? Right. Like today, I was out pulling thistle and I saw a bee in a mariposa lily. Oh, wow. And it was just magnificent. I took a picture of it, posted it on Facebook, and people are liking it. It's You never know what you're going to run into out there. You never know. So what, what else has your daily maintenance taught you, not only about the trail, but about life in general? Well, I, I guess one of the things that I come back to time and again is uh, how to play the long game. And I've done that in various ways in my life. For example, saving for retirement is a long game. Mm -hmm. um, pulling invasive species is a long game. And so it's getting back in touch with just day in, day out, do a little something to push something along. And before you know it, you've actually made uh, quite a distance in, in your goals. So it's, that's one of the key messages, I guess, from working out there. Yeah, you have all these great articles about tackling the thistle. And I think it's so funny because it's this literal spiny, thorny <laughs> thing that has been a metaphorical thorn in your side for so many years. Yes, and it seems completely overwhelming, but just by pulling out a couple mm -hmm. uh, uh, at a time, you kind of make eventual progress. Right. And a couple things about that. One is to set reasonable goals. And it took me a little while to, to understand that lesson. But my goal right now is simply to get the thistle away from the hikers, to get it off the trail. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be an achievable goal. Yeah. Um, so that's really what I'm after right now. Um, and another is... You know, sometimes you're out there and you kind of get depressed at, at the size of the job. <laughs> and so I came up with a question that I asked myself, have I made a difference today? And the answer is always yes. So that helps me. That's a huge uh, conclusion to come to, I think. Mm. Another one that you talk about is, is this concept of being gently powerful. 
Right. Maybe you could describe that for us. Yeah. So being a river guide, and one time I was on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, and when you're down there in rock that is, you know, close to a couple billion years old, it's really hard, volcanic, uh, metamorphosed rock schist. It's extremely hard. And yet you see what the river has done to it. And it has fluted that rock by just carrying sand for millennia. And it just chews away at the rock. And so a river has a way of being gently powerful. You would not be on that river and say, that river is tearing up that rock. You don't see it. Mm. It's just over time, it's gently powerful. And we can also be gently powerful as well. Yeah, we can. But you also use uh, the idea of trees, how they can break rocks yes. and bend metal. and Yeah, so I have a treehouse in my backyard. And uh, a mistake I made was putting the treehouse right on the tree. And so, for example, one part I have a ladder that goes up to my lookout. And that ladder has been completely warped by the tree. But it's happened so slowly that the wood just has bent and it hasn't broken yet. And it's just the tree gently pushes against the wood and, and keeps bending it, keeps bending it. And uh, so that's the tree being generally powerful as well. Yeah, pretty amazing. So a lot of these observations you came to maybe making doing this maintenance on the trail. And you put together an amazing book about the Sonoma Overlook Trail that recently came out called The View from Above. It's a collection of writings of from the more than 70 notebooks filled by hikers who reached the top of the Overlook Trail. There are some wonderful drawings, photographs, a directory of states and countries where all the authors came from, um, and entries range from just another day in paradise to today my heart is broken. What is it like going through these no- notebooks, and what did they teach you about the trail you're so familiar with? Yeah, well, it was really moving to do so, first of all. Um, one of the nice things about it was as I went through the notebooks, I realized that by far the the two emotions expressed the most were appreciation and gratitude. Mm. And so those are the biggest sections in the book. And as you mentioned, there are people who go up there for solace. They're heartbroken or, you know, they've had a fight with their spouse or whatever it might be. They just need to get out in nature, uh, be alone with their thoughts, look around, um, realize that the world is bigger than their problems. And the trail offers that for them. And so we really run the gamut of human emotion in that book. And reading through all those entries was quite moving in a lot of cases. In other cases, simply funny. Like you would have kids, obviously children, because you could <laughs> see the handwriting. Yeah. You'd have someone say, I hate this trail, yeah. which I just loved, you know, because obviously his parents drug, his or her parents drug the kid up there and they were just hating the experience. But you have to know that sometime in the future, they probably will start enjoying trails. Yeah, some sarcastic comments. Great trail. Love the view. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You could just tell there was some sarcasm there. Right. And someone wants to put a sandwich shop up there and, you know, stuff like that. So yeah. it's, it's kind of funny. So it really runs the gamut, frankly. And especially since most of the time when you're doing all this stuff out there, you're by yourself. So to have 70 mm-hmm. books filled with other people's perspectives must have been kind of neat. Yeah, well, the notebook idea started at the very beginning of the trail. So we've actually been doing it for 20 years. The problem being is that somewhere in the past, we lost a big chunk of them. Mm. Um, And so we really only have from about, we've got maybe one from 2011, and then we start in earnest in about 2012. So we have a little over a decade's worth of notebooks and you f- we go through one uh, in about 45 days. Really? Yeah. So uh, they get filled up. That's great. Yeah. So, um, But it's very interesting going page by page through them and just finding some gems and uh, taking a picture of them and putting them in the book. Yeah. Well, so the motto of the trail is, of all the paths you take in life, make sure a few of them are dirt. You've taken quite a few different paths in your life. You grew up on a farm in Spencer, Indiana. You mentioned a treehouse that you were building. Tell Mm -hmm. us about your very first treehouse. My very first treehouse was when I was 16, and my family had just moved back from California. Well, first of all, let me just back up very quickly. I was born in Indiana, in Spencer. When I was five, my family moved to California, and then we lived there until I was uh, 16. With the intent of going to Micronesia, right? Yes. I say. We actually did go to Micronesia for two, for weeks. two weeks. My dad wanted to live there for a year, but that really was not an option. He, <laughs> he just thought he could just somehow go out on some far island and just live there like 
Robinson Crusoe or something. <laughs> so we came back and spent the, the, the winter in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, I just hiked and read. Um, and then after that, we joined an intentional community in Indiana, lo and behold, back in Spencer. And wow. so I ended up being back there at 16 after experiencing California. And what an eye-opener that was. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do was build a treehouse because I, I built a very primitive small one when I was in an alternative school in the, foot, in the um, Santa Cruz Mountains when I was like 12, 14, along in there. And so I wanted to build one in earnest. And so I found these two trees that I built the treehouse in between them. It was about 30 feet up, and it had walls and windows and um, roof, and I slept. Stove? A stove. I'd made a stove out of a five-gallon gas can, <laughs> and uh, that was kind of hilarious, but it worked, and spent an Indiana winter sleeping up there. What do you think, where do you think that fascination with the trees came from? I've always enjoyed heights, and I've always enjoyed trees, and I have a picture of when I was four or five, and when I climbed my first tree. Really? Yeah, oh, and cool. uh, so I've never stopped climbing trees since. So thinking about this young Roy, uh, if you could talk to him now, what would you say? It's all going to be all right. <laughs> I've been extremely lucky, and I've had things work out for me that probably shouldn't have, but they did. That's a good lesson. Yeah. Well, you've written some absolutely beautiful essays and articles about some of the incredible adventures you've had since then, since mm -hmm. young Roy in the treehouse in this Indiana winter, including taking a Greyhound bus back to California by yourself, um, hiking throughout the Grand Canyon, and your efforts to save Stanislaw River from being dammed. How would you describe, a lot of these things talk about the outdoors, being outside, mm -hmm. hiking in the, in the big sky country, as we like to call it. How would you describe your relationship to the outdoors? Well, I've always spent a lot of time outside, and in fact, at one point I thought I might want to be a forest ranger uh, until I, I found out that a forest ranger really just means you work with lumber companies. <laughs> so I kind of gave up on that idea. Yeah. Um, but then I found libraries, and um, I ended up really enjoying both working mentally and being out in the physical world as well. So, like, I remember being... The happiest I've ever been was when I was working at a community college library in the foothills of the Sierra and then also uh, running rivers on the weekend. So I was working seven days a week, and it felt like perfect. You know, like that was fine. I was okay with that because I was both working my mind as well as my body out in the, out in the wilderness, out in the wild, which I really enjoy. And so um, it's like it was working both sides of my personality, if you will, um, and I try to be what I consider to be a modern Renaissance man, where I try to acquire skills um, across the board from technology to uh, outdoor uh, adventure. You were really doing outdoor adventure. I mean, when I talked about you hiking throughout the Grand Canyon, you were really hiking yeah. throughout the Grand Canyon. Right. I, I pretty much hiked every trail off the South Rim. Um, I didn't, didn't get to the North Rim trails, but all the South Rim trails pretty much I had hiked. And the, the wonder of this for me is that I was hiking those trails from 18 to 21. And on my 21st birthday uh, in July, I was okay to run commercial trips for oars up in the foothills of Sierra. Mm -hmm. That was like virtually the first time I had been down a river. <laughs> wow. I mean, that, that season yeah. was the first time I'd been down a river in 1978. By September, I was rowing my own boat in the Grand Canyon. Wow. And that was a mind-blowing experience for several reasons. One is just, you know, doing that within that short span of time from when you first went down a river to running the Grand Canyon. But the other was the fact that I was so familiar with the Grand Canyon from trails. And the oh. idea of experiencing it on the water was absolutely incredible. And that first trip was a 30-day trip, and it was just mind-blowing. And I was in love I mean, even more in love. I'd already fallen in love with the Grand Canyon, but rafting it just really sealed the deal for me. Yeah, so you got into river rafting as a whitewater rafting guide, as you just yeah. mentioned, and you've led trips not only in the Grand Canyon, but throughout California, Oregon, um, and you have some incredible videos on your YouTube that highlight the splashes and speed you move through on those trips. 
As far as I know, you've only flipped your raft twice. One of those two flips was yes. in a granite rapid in Grand Canyon. Yes. Could you tell us a story of how that <laughs> happened? Yeah, that was that's both <laughs> funny and also real gripper because <clears throat> my father um, always believed he was going to die young. Actually, he didn't. He's 86, still alive in Thailand. Later on, he figured out that his premonition about dying young was abs- actually his uh, his um, brother-in-law mm. died young of leukemia. But anyway, we still I had this in my head, and we were, I was taking my family down. Uh, they actually had the permit. <clears throat> Long story, but I just let it go with that. And and so I had my dad in the boat running Granite Rapid, which is one of the big rapids in the Grand Canyon. It's um, rated 7 to, to 9 on a 1 to 10 scale. And it was bad. The, the water was high, and it's very squirrely. It's really hard to hit the wave straight. And you have to hit the wave straight or you'll get flipped in this. I was in a 16-foot boat. Wow. And so I did flip. And I didn't find my dad for a little while. I came up from under the water, and I'm looking for him, looking for him, and thinking, oh, my God, I have to go under the boat and see if he's under the boat. And that's when he popped up. And I was like, oh, my God, what a relief. Um, And he was okay. And (laughs) I thought, oh, my God, Dad, (laughs) you may die young, but you're not going to die today. (laughs) Not not with me as the guide. not as me as the guide. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And it seems like it kind of ma- matches your connection to the Overlook Trail. You went every single trail on the South Rim, and I think that develops some kind of familiarity that otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, one or two-time visitor would not have. Right, right. Yeah, and um, I wanted to have all those different experiences because every trail is different, and the sights you see are different. Different times of year are different. Yes, exactly. In fact, I was down there one winter, and that was amazing. And I, I had to get in-step crampons because the snow was, um, the trails were icy, and the snow went down into the canyon for a ways. And so I was snow camping the first night. And back then, it was before everyone had light gear. So I had full wool. I had, you know, two sleeping pads. I had a three-person tent. You know, my pack was probably 50, 60 pounds. And um, then when I, by the time I got down to the bottom of the canyon, it was it was almost warm. I mean, comparatively. Wow. And the snow was gone. It was um, certainly warmer than up on the rim because it's a, a mile in elevation that wow, you that's crazy. you drop. Yeah, and it also taught me hiking in the Grand Canyon taught me how to be methodical in hiking because if you try to rush things too much, you get exhausted and you never make it out. You just have to take it one step at a time, very slowly, and you can make it out that way. Another great lesson from hiking the trails. Yeah. So we're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of Roy Tennant on Hello, Sonoma. Hello, Sonoma, and welcome back. I'm your host, Francisco, and we're here with my guest, Roy Tennant. We were just talking about some of the incredible lessons he learned hiking methodically through the Grand Canyon and other lessons that you've written in many of the articles that, that you've had published. I mentioned some of these, but you've some of these articles as ways of cataloging your life, but you've also done so, uh, cataloged your life and experiences in other ways, namely as a photographer and uh, one of the founders of freelargephotos.com. You have some amazing pictures, including returning to the Overlook Trail for a a time lapse of the same spot over a whole year. How has photography affected the way you see the world? Yeah, it's it's affected me since I was probably, let's see, I was about 12 or 13 when I got my first uh, single lens reflex camera. That's when I became an avid photographer, amateur photographer. I've always been an amateur photographer. I've never done it professionally, but I've always taken the camera with me whenever I go hiking or what have you. And I, up until about a couple years ago, I'd take a small uh, pocket camera with me, but I destroyed two cameras in the Grand Canyon recently through sand. (laughs) And so I kind of gave up on having a small camera and I've just used the phone now, which is, as you know, the phones are incredible these days in terms of taking pictures, especially the iPhone 14 these days, which can take um, pictures in raw format, which are can be quite large, and you can enlarge them quite quite a lot without a loss of um, resolution. So uh, the phone camera has gotten pretty good 
for sure. And um, the thing the thing that uh, annoys my wife is that I really don't take pictures of people, mm. and so I don't really have as many pictures of the family, say, as others would. Um, so I I tend to p- take pictures of nature and landscapes and sunsets and so forth. Uh, that's what I enjoy taking pictures of. There's something kind of timeless about that kind of photography, too. Sure. Whereas the family photos are about that moment, mm-hmm. the woodpecker or the sunset, anyone can see anywhere and have a deep appreciation for it. Sure. How has your uh, photography evolved since your first uh, <laughs> foray into the field? Gosh. Uh I'm not sure that my picture taking has evolved that much, but I know that my processing of the photos has evolved as tools have gotten better. And so whenever I put my photos online, well, I shouldn't say whenever, um, mostly when I put my photos online, they've been through Photoshop and I've done some adjustments. And I try to keep the adjustments um, natural looking and not, you know, sometimes people can over adjust their photos and they start looking weird. But I try to keep those very natural. But there's often a fair amount you can do to improve a photograph that's more like what you would have seen in real life rather than what the camera captures. And so I'd say that's evolved. But I'm not sure my picture taking itself has evolved that much. Just your observation has continued to sharpen maybe. Right. Well, another one of your cataloging interests has been in the library sciences. And Mm -hmm. as I mentioned at the very beginning, you're an internationally known speaker who has spoken at events all over the world. I'm wondering if you could share with us what you were speaking about. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is one of the times when I think luck has played a really big part in my life. So I happened to go to college late because I was essentially a high school dropout. So I didn't go straight from high school into college because I had like these two years where I was completely out of school completely. And so um, when I left Indiana to come back to California, I got a job at the, the a community college library in the foothills of Sierra as a library assistant. And so I worked there for a number of years and just dabbled in um, taking classes there at the junior college and got my GED, my high school equivalency. And so by the time I actually started to go to college in earnest, computers had started to hit in a big way. So that's when microcomputers came along. And in fact, I was on the first microcomputer I ever used at that junior college the year before I left to go to uh, university. Mm. And I wrote my first program in BASIC. And the first program I wrote was a library orientation uh, program. Really? Yeah. And so I realized that I wanted to go into technology, but I didn't want to major in it. And so what I did was... um, I moved to Humboldt to go to Humboldt State, but before I did that, I had to get a year in a College of the Redwoods. And so when I went to College of the Redwoods, I took a geography course, and I realized that that's really what I loved, the study of the world and man's place in it. It's it's so holistic. And so I decided to major in that and minor in computer science. And so when I entered Humboldt, I um, was taking a lot of programming classes, And so that put me on a technology track. And so when I graduated from Humboldt and went to Berkeley to get my master's, by that time I had already had experience automating the the library circulation system at Humboldt State. Mm. Um, So I was there when we first implemented that system, and I was a key operator of it. And so when I went to Berkeley, they were also automating. And so I parlayed my experience at Humboldt into a leadership position in working with the systems office and the branch libraries to implement circulation in the various branches. Um, And so that put me in a strong technology uh, role. And then the internet came along. The good old internet. The good old internet. (laughs) The interwebs. And this is back in the day when it was before the web. It was when we were using things like Gopher and uh, wide area information servers, Waze, other Telnet, um, email, of course, but we were using Unix email. Uh, all these very primitive technologies that you know we left in the dust long ago. But I was an early adopter of those, and so um, I was in the position, I guess, to uh, co-author the first book about the internet for librarians. 
my mentor um, wanted to, to write that book. Well, she actually wanted to put on a workshop for librarians, and librarians were coming to San Francisco for a national conference in um, 1992. And so she wanted to put on a, a workshop on how to use the Internet. And so we started pulling together handouts on how to use the Internet. And before long, we realized we had enough handouts for a book. And so later that year in November, we published those handouts as an instructional handbook. And it was one of the first dozen books out there on the Internet for a lay audience, period. Mm-hmm. And so what happened from that was I parlayed that into a speaking career of speaking about, first of all, the Internet and what you could do with it and all that, and then eventually just library technology um, more generally. And so um, I'd be asked to keynote conferences all over the world um, eventually. And part of what helped that was along the way I was involved with um, uh, Sun gave – the Berkeley Library, a big computer to run a what's called a Sun site. And usually these mm-hmm. were big computers with a lot of software that people could come and download and, and load in their computer and use. But we were the second digital library Sun site. And so our focus was on building digital libraries. And so I ran that service. And at, in 1995, I believe, I pitched to the, one of the two journals for librarians a column on digital libraries. Yeah. And this was um, around the time when librarians were really wondering what this whole thing was, what the digital library meant. And so I wrote a monthly column there for over a decade. And that exposure really upped my uh, exposure to the profession and became this um, this visible expert, if you will, in library technology. Yeah. You were right on the forefront of this thing, this mysterious Internet that people weren't right. really sure what to do. As you mentioned, you co-authored one of the very first books called Crossing the Internet Threshold, I believe, mm-hmm. because people weren't sure how yeah. to cross it. And you also – oh, please. Well, the, the, the name came from a colleague who also co-authored. There were three, three of us who mm-hmm. co-authored, and he had a great analogy. He was an instructor there at the library school. His analogy was – that in the internet, you had all these various different things you could do, like email right. or telnet, connecting to a, another server and using it remotely, and and gopher and all these, these things. And in order to use them, you had to enter a room. You had to say to the, the, the computer you're on, I want to do telnet now. Mm. I want to do file transfer now. And so you'd enter into this room that had all these commands you could use that were around that service. And so, therefore, his analogy was that um, the Internet was this house, and it had all these different rooms in it, and you could go leave one room and go into another and do something different. And so that's where we got the crossing the Internet threshold analogy. I really like that because it's a kind of opening the door into a, new, a right. new world, if you will. Right. Well, so besides that book, you also gave numerous hands-on Internet workshops to companies yes. like Apple, who gave you a Network Citizen Award in the early 90s, which is so in- amazing to think about the fact that even they had to learn about the Internet, too. Oh, yeah. It, you also gave a fascinating talk at the Smithsonian uh, where you discuss the future of libraries and the Internet. And there's kind of this very close ties with uh, the Internet as a system and libraries as a system. I'm wondering if you right. could share a little bit or describe what you think the relationship is between the Internet and libraries. Well, this goes back to the very first time when I when I ran into a computer. So this is in 1981, maybe, and I'm working on this um, – Oh, God, I forget the, what the brand of it was, but it's one of the first computers that – microcomputers that you could work on. And you had to load your software off a cassette tape. That's how ancient it was. <laughs> and um, I realized very quickly that if libraries are about information, mm-hmm. then computers are going to be absolutely essential to libraries. And that's what really shoved me into computers. Right. And I was kind of off to the races after that. So – um, and I'd like t- to say that, you know, I've forgotten more programming languages than, than a lot of people know <laughs> um, because I've been programming since 1981, essentially. And it's a different world now. Oh, yes. Completely different. In fact, now AI is writing code. Yeah, in a big way. Yeah. But so I've, I like when I visualize libraries, you know, I think of this 
different places all around the world full of books and information that you can go to. Mm -hmm. And the internet for a long time seemed like this ethereal, like I'm not even sure exactly how it works, but it kind of is in a similar way, I mean, pretty close. Mm -hmm. You have these different servers where information is and you go and request it. Do you think that the the talk of the Smithsonian was specifically about the future of libraries and the internet? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there is a future where both these things continue to exist or is it going to become more blended? Like, what do you think? Well, um, they're both going to continue to exist, but they will exist in togetherness. I mean, libraries know how to use the Internet, and they can teach people how to use the Internet. And we have a lot of things on the Internet we put there. Right. So, in fact, I was digitizing material back in the 90s and putting it online. Um, We had most of Jack London's works online, and that was in the 90s. Before it was available. Yeah, before... Other players got involved, like right. Google. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think that there's kind of a natural um, affinity, if you will, between libraries and the Internet. I think um, we've sometimes struggled to, to uh, understand how best to use it and how best to put it in front of people. But we've usually done a pretty good job of doing that. And I think that librarians, I think— were really good early adopters in the internet. Absolutely. And there's some professions, such as realtors, who were essentially clue, clueless about it for a very long time. Um, and so uh, I, th- I do think that we've done a probably a better job than some professions. And I think even medicine is still trying to figure out how to use it effectively. Yeah, well, organizing information is one of your your strong suits right. and also the profession itself. So among your many titles, you helped direct digital programs at UC Berkeley. You worked at the California Digital Library, the Online Computer Library Center. You mentioned the Jack Lennon Collection, which has this incredible, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, collection, I guess, of mm-hmm. Jack Lennon's works. You also saw this, uh, saw to it that the medieval classical literature library would be available online, which includes everything from Icelandic sagas to the high history of the Holy Grail. I think just these two examples highlight the incredible diversity of what exists in our libraries and what mm-hmm. exists on the Internet. What do you wish people knew about the magic of libraries? Um, well, I always rankle when someone says, well, we've got the Internet, we don't need libraries, and because... We certainly do need libraries, and libraries are still very much a part of a lot of people's lives. Uh, I know I certainly go there frequently and get books. And Me too. Um, a lot of people go there to get trained up in a new skill. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why libraries are still a big part of our lives or should be a big part of our lives. Um, so to me, it's not either the Internet or libraries. It's both. And it's just a matter of figuring out which is best for, for what. And you can go out on the Internet and find all kinds of misinformation. Um, but if you go to your library, then you know, you're working with someone who really understands how to get the right information, mm-hmm. whether it's in the library or on the Internet. Yeah, big shout-out to the Sonoma Valley Regional Library right across the street here. They have so many amazing <clears throat> resources that if you go there and talk to a librarian, they're mm-hmm. so excited to talk to you about yeah. it. Yeah, right. And I serve on the library advisory board there. Oh, amazing. Well, that's great. (laughs) That explains it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think um, libraries have become sort of underappreciated. But as you mentioned, great early adopters. There are ways now that you can get library books on your phone, on your uh, Mm -hmm. e-readers, on your computer. Mm -hmm. You can get movies, TV shows, newspapers, magazines, lots of things that people don't know about. Right. A lot of people use the library but never enter the doors. Right. Yeah. Never cross the threshold. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, uh, so I- I'm curious, you know, you've t- taken so much of your time and-, and taught so many people about the Internet, about digital concepts. And many of your books, the titles, I don't fully understand what you're talking about. It's yeah. very niche. Um, but I think it's important that we acknowledge the other teachers in our lives. And you mentioned you had this amazing article about uh, Anne Lippo. Lippo. Uh, yeah, who kind of ushered you into this world? Yeah, gosh, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> she was really an amazing person, and she first—well, I first met her at Berkeley. She was working at Berkeley for many years, and she ran the instructional program for the library, where they would teach faculty and staff, and and also library staff about things. Therefore, the internet, or actually, first it was dial-up. And so um, this is back in the day when you had to, like, use a modem on your computer 
and dial into a mainframe computer on campus in order to be able to do things. And, and that's how you would connect with the library and search our online catalog. And so I created the handout that described how you could do that. And so she had sucked me into her instructional program. I was actually a librarian in a different part of the library, and she would just find people who she felt had talent and bring them into her program to help with instruction. And so I was one of her recruits. And um, then that's also, you know, how how I ended up being recruited for her project to do the workshop for the Internet. And that became the book, which then, of course, launched my career in the stratosphere. And she left the library um, actually before she did the book, before she did the workshop. And she had her own business, Library Institute, mm-hmm. as she called it. And then when she found out that she had a book on her hands, she changed the name to Library Institute and Press mm-hmm. because she became a publisher. And she was unlike any other publisher ever. And so she worked with a union shop. She uh, made sure that she paid royalties on a monthly basis. Wow. No one does that. No one does that. She paid royalties monthly. And that saved my butt because— the book came out in the fall of 92, and my twins were born in February 1993. And so we, we were just hitting the financial wall of that, of two of everything. <laughs> two cribs, two, you know, jumpers, two whatever, two of everything was just a financial wall. And the royalties had already started to come in and smoothed out that, that what would have been a financial disaster. So the timing was perfect. Again, luck playing a big part in my life. Um, but Anne was an incredible mentor, and she would always treat you right. And um, she taught me a lot. Yeah, she did. And I think, you know, we often, many times we don't think about the impact we're having on other people. Mm-hmm. And when you think about teachers like that, yeah. you can remember, you know, people can leave such a powerful positive impact on us, and it's important to remember yes. them and to think about the ways in which they've affected our path. Right. So I, I tend, I tried to pay it forward. Um, she died early of cancer. So I tried to mentor young women in technology. Um, the thing about libraries is it's 80% female profession, but the technology side is 80% male. Or I, it's probably not 80% male, but it's a lot of male. Um, and so women can find it hard to break into that. Um, even in libraries, they can be mistreated, uh, put down, talked over, all these various things that um, can happen to women in a male-dominated area. And so I would try to um, mentor them in various ways, like write um, um, recommendations when they're applying for jobs. I help them meet others like them, you know, build networks, build their own networks. Um, I'd go to the annual conference and I would um, buy a group of them dinner so they could network and talk about, you know, what they were doing in technology, uh, things like that. And that was trying to pay it forward for for Anne. Well, you've done an amazing job, Roy, and thank you so much for sharing um, your connection to this amazing woman. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be back on Hello, Sonoma. Hello, Sonoma, and welcome back. I'm your host, Francisco, and my guest today is Roy Tennant. We were just talking about his incredible career as a library scientist in many ways. I was wondering, Roy, if you could tell us how you got involved in in the library. What drew you to it? Yeah, well, this happened when I was in Indiana. I was uh, 17, and I wanted to um, get off the farm as as it was and do something, uh, volunteer work if you will. And first I went to the local park because Mm. I thought I'd want to do something outdoors. But they didn't really have anything for me. And so um, I was a big reader, huge reader. And so it occurred to me that maybe I could volunteer at the local library. So they've got a a public library there in Spencer. And so I went in the library um, to find out if they would take a volunteer, and they would. And so I worked there for, for a while uh, when I was still back in Indiana and learned how to 
alphabetize cards and file them into mm-hmm. the catalog and do various things like that. And I ended up really enjoying it. And then when I um, turned 18 and I hopped a bus back to California, uh, the county that I moved to was in a severe economic downturn. Uh, we had unemployment rates in the double digits. And so when I went to the Employment Development Department, they, they essentially laughed in my face and said, you know, uh, move out of this county. Really? Yeah. Wow. And they, because they had no jobs for me. They, you know, they couldn't put me to work. <clears throat> so, but what happened was they did have a program called Summer Youth, and I qualified. And so what that did was it provided them resources to be able to pay me to essentially volunteer somewhere. And so when I was being placed, I was taking these various places uh, for potential jobs, and nothing interested me. And then finally I just said, well, is there a library I could work at? Because I, I enjoyed working in a library in Indiana. And they took me to the, the local junior college there, which is Columbia oh, Junior College. yeah. And I worked there for the summer. And what happened was after that, they hired me. And so I was working there at that library for several years as a library assistant. And, excuse me, and I, for a while, I ran the AV department. And this is a very hilly campus. And so I would be, I'd sling a 16 millimeter projector on my shoulder and carry it up and down stairs. Preparing you. Yes, exactly. Preparing me for hiking the Grand Canyon. So um, I would set up the projector for the for the classes and then break it down and bring it back. And I created a checkout system that didn't exist uh, when I got there and did various other things and also typed up catalog cards, um, put them in the catalog uh, as we, we got, got materials, and then eventually realized that I wanted to make a profession out of it. That is amazing. I just yeah. love that idea that you volunteered at a place that you enjoyed and then <laughs> yeah. life it became took it a career. There. there you go. Right. So we've been talking about libraries who host so many books that we love, but I think uh, besides the many books that you've already written, I think you should really write a book about yourself because you've had so many incredible life lessons peppered throughout the blog articles and essays that you've written. Uh, one of them is talking tech, explaining technical topics to a non-technical audience, which I think we all need. Among the lessons, summarize, simplify, and have fun. But one that I was particularly drawn to was success on the plane of suckitude, <laughs> doing it despite the fear. Uh, talk yes. to us a little bit about this concept. This came to me in Australia on a trip. And, I mean, it's one of these things that that was came to me full born. I mean, it just, I had the concept, the entire concept at this one moment, essentially. And so I got out of bed. This is, of course, in the middle of the night. Sure. It always is, It right? always is. And I drew it on a piece of paper. And that drawing was essentially unchanged in the presentation I eventually gave on that. And the idea is that, you know, we're not all born with just, the skill to do everything. We have to learn things. We have to struggle with things, mm. like learning how to ride a bike. And it occurred to me that the point of the most frustration you have in learning something is two things. It's the point at which you're likely to quit, but it's also the point at which you're likely to have a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. And so I remember my daughter trying to learn how to ride a bike, and she would be so frustrated, and then bang, she would get it. And so the the essential thing there is I was trying to tell people to not die on the plane of suckitude because the plane is flat and you feel like you're making absolutely no progress, no progress, no progress until bingo, something happens. But if you give up before that moment, you die on the plane of suckitude and you'll always suck at that thing. <laughs> but if you can reach the elevator of enlightenment, you'll go straight up. And then from there, you can then build skill and, 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 you know, get better and better and better. But you have to get off the plane. And that's the essential bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like this diagram because we sometimes think of um, learning as incremental. And that kind of gives us the illusion of even steps where mm-hmm. now I'm going to learn this and then I'm going to learn this. But oftentimes that's not how it goes at, at all. Oh, right, exactly. You, you talk about the plane of suckitude, then there's the chasm of self-doubt. The yes. elevator of enlightenment, the long incline of experience, and finally, 
the plane of mastery. I'm wondering what are some of the things that you've managed to do despite the fear and conquer those those six or seven steps? Oh, rafting. Um, in fact, I still have fear rafting, but I know how to handle it. And um, I know how to work through it and use it to my advantage. Um, but, you know, there's certainly been times when I thought, you know, I, I don't have this. I don't, you mm. know, have what it takes or whatever. Um, but over time and lots and lots and lots of practice, um, I'm actually pretty good at it. Uh, and you can see that in my videos. <laughs> yeah. So um, and I'm going down the canyon again in, uh, next April. And one of my daughters is coming. That's I'm awesome. Hoping she learns how to row on that trip. Yeah, that would be so. such a cool full circle moment. Right. Yeah, watching these videos, it's incredible because obviously the river is huge. Mm -hmm. And to the untrained eye, it just looks like you're rowing. But yeah. then suddenly the raft will turn and you'll go perfectly down exactly where you need to go. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that you can't just learn. There's yeah. no book. I mean, there probably is. but Well, yeah, there's there's certainly things you can look at and, and um, talk to people about and, and learn by doing and all that. Um, I also happen to be really good spatially. Mm. So I once I've been on a boat for a while, I know exactly the dimensions of that boat. And I can go past a wall with an inch to spare and know I'm going to miss it. Yeah. So that kind of spatial awareness can be really useful in rafting, um, especially once you've really learned how to read water, because that's that's the essential bit, is you have to be able to read water. And that means looking very, very closely at what the water is doing. And the water is not just going downstream. People think it just kind of moves downstream between two banks and that's it. But there's a lot usually that's going on. And you and that's why often the orientation of the boat seems weird <laughs> because you'd be going sideways a lot mm -hmm. or, you know, angled downstream or you just have these odd positions and you wonder why is that? And there's usually always a good reason. So the, the second part of this article, doing it despite the fear. You mentioned rafting. Is it, I mean, it's obviously there's some fear there because you could flip. Who knows what happens? Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, because this seems to apply to so many different things, what do you think the benefits are of doing it despite the fear, of getting over the, those well, fears? Well, I'll use a different example. Um, probably the biggest fear I've ever had is public speaking. And as you know, I've made a career out of <laughs> yes. public speaking. And so I remember the time when I first started speaking. This was right after the book was published. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I had been doing some workshops before then. Mm -hmm. But after the book was published, we started to do these three-hour-long workshops or day-long workshops. Yep. And that's when I really started to um, have to deal with my fear because I would get butterflies in my stomach. My voice would clench. I'd go dry mouth. I had all these physical symptoms of the fear of public speaking, which got in my way. And essentially, I worked through it just by doing it and doing it enough to where I got over it. And I started to understand how to project my voice and how to um, speak with authority and be heard in a room and all those things that it helps when you're when you're public speaking. Um, so I eventually got to the point where I was fairly calm doing it. And the calmest I was when the, was when the room was the biggest, oddly enough, right? Because everyone just disappears when you're in a really big room, it's hard to just look at one person. But if you're in a room with five people, <laughs> you know, you're looking at individuals right. and that's, that's where it really gets hard. I think for me. Yeah. Well, I heard someone say recently, I don't know what you think about this, that a head full of dreams, a head full of fear has no space for dreams. Oh, yeah, I like that. I, I've always been a fan of dealing with your fears. Um, I think fear is an awful place to be. And um, it's good to, and anxiety is even worse because, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I shouldn't be sitting here worrying about something that hasn't happened and may never happen. And I've got plenty of time later on, if it does happen, <laughs> to deal with it. Yeah. But I'm not going to sit there and anguish over it when it might not even happen. It's just a waste of time. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that it seems you prepare yourself is you carry a Swiss Army knife, I believe, oh, yeah. around with you everywhere. And a Leatherman tool, yeah. And a Leatherman. Yeah. Where did that come from? How did you keep that going? Uh, I've, I, I was a Boy Scout at one time. <laughs> but 
I've always believed in being prepared. And so I also have a length of parachute cord that I carry with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have what I call everyday carry, which means things are in my pocket every day. And that mm-hmm. includes those two knives. Uh, I've got a couple tiny flashlights with me. I've got, you know, like I mentioned, the parachute cord. Um, I used to have a USB, but I need to get another one uh, because it got damaged. Um, so I've got various things I carry with me all the time. And so I just believe in being prepared, essentially. And it comes in handy. It helps you not be afraid when you know that you're going to be ready for whatever happens. That's right. That's right. So I'm wondering, we started this conversation talking about a particular place, mm-hmm. the Overlook Trail. We talked about its parallel, the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you mentioned one thing that I wanted to touch back on, that you decided to major in geography because it was uh, learning about the world and man's place in it. You mm-hmm. called it your calling, I believe. T- tell me about your relationship to that and subject. Yeah, well, as I think I mentioned, I've I've always been a holistic kind of person. I've always wanted to learn widely and deeply about things. And uh, history is something I'm very much involved with as well. So, um, and and just geography meaning it encompasses so many things like the weather and, you know, ocean currents and geology and and all these things that I I have interest in. And so I would used to go on field geology classes at at Columbia College where we'd all pile into a van and go somewhere for a week and and just do geology and and I just really enjoyed those kinds of things. And again it's my attempt to be somewhat of a renaissance man to know a lot about a, a lot of things. And so I kind of did not want to do the classic education where you got ever narrower until you became the expert in the world on this tiny little thing. Mm-hmm. That just never was my happy place. And so um, I was able to avoid that by being a librarian because uh, that's what my master's is in, because then that's also a very holistic thing and puts you in touch with a, a wide variety of informational objects, um, whether they be books or movies or what have you. So um, I, I just really enjoy what geography is and stands for. Well, I'm so honored that you would join us today and t- map us out a little bit of your own life <laughs> and talk to us uh, about your many stories. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today, Roy. Thank you, Francisco. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, to all those out there listening, thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Hello Sonoma on KSVY. And though we've reached the end of this episode, remember, it's not goodbye. It's Hello Sonoma. Hello Sonoma.